Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 232, Trinity Club Orientation. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a sort of follow-up to episode 231. Some people in the Facebook group have asked me to comment on Swinburne's entire presentation. Well, that's a tall order. As you heard, if you heard the previous episode, it's really, really involved. He's a very careful reasoner, and he's been constructing a series of speculations about the social trinity since about the early 90s or so. I will get around to addressing it eventually, and I'm working on revising the presentation that you heard in episode 230 so that it accurately fits his most up-to-date version of his philosophical argument for the trinity and really gives a fair evaluation of that argument. So in this episode, I'm not going to continue on this theme of trying to argue for the Trinity from reason alone. This episode is based on a comment by my friend Brandon Duke from St. Louis, Missouri in the Trinity's podcast Facebook group. This was his reaction while he was listening to the presentation. He writes, Holy schmoly! Swinburne thinks you cannot derive from the New Testament a doctrine of the Trinity, and, unless Christians today either recognize some good a priori argument for a doctrine of the Trinity, or think that the fact that the subsequent church taught the doctrine of the Trinity is a significant reason for interpreting the passages in a Trinitarian way, it seems to him that most Christians would not be justified in believing the doctrine. Wow! So what does a Protestant who holds to sola scriptura say? Swinburne is wrong, and it's in there? A few minutes later, he writes, This reminds me of a quote from The Magnificent Seven, an old cowboy movie. The Hispanic villain complains that, In Texas, if a Texan robs a bank, maybe the sheriff or a posse goes after him. Once, I robbed a bank in Texas, and they sent an army, a whole army. In Texas, only Texans can rob banks. Maybe the same thing applies to the Trinity and Orthodoxy. Only Trinitarian scholars can say that the doctrine can't be derived from Scripture. If I say it, they send a whole army. Not literally, of course. Thank God. This is something I've thought about a lot over the last 10 years, although I don't think it's hardly ever come up on the podcast, and that's the sociology of Trinitarianism. Most of my published work is discussing Trinity theories. These are understandable ways to try to make sense of traditional Trinitarian language. They're ways that can be defended, at least if you're willing to make certain commitments, against the charge that the Trinity is self-contradictory or that it can't be understood, and so on. And these are worth evaluating insofar as we're concerned about the truth or the falsity of the doctrine, and insofar as we're concerned about one's justification for the doctrine, And Professor Richard Swinburne is a key part of that tradition in recent times. The tradition of trying to come up with an intelligible trinity theory. But I've always been interested not just in what the intellectual elites think, but in what people, so to speak, on the ground think. What ordinary Christians think about all of these things. And I learned a long time ago that the vast majority of Christians who attend officially Trinitarian churches don't themselves have any Trinity theory. 
they're aware of what they're supposed to say and their ideas kind of shift around back and forth between different incompatible ways of trying to give some meaning to the traditional language. I remember talking to a good friend of mine, a former student, and just asking them basic questions would result in something that sounded like tritheism, then something that sounded like just God has three personalities, the Father's the same person as the Son, no, they're different beings. And every so often, sociologists come up with hard data to the effect that, for instance, evangelicals in the pew do not really understand what the Trinity is supposed to be, and they don't feel that they're committed to all of that. For instance, a great many Christians in Trinitarian churches think that the Holy Spirit is like God's power and a power given to believers. They don't think that it's one of three persons in God of the same status as the Father and the Son. There's a steady drumbeat of apologists and theologians lamenting this and saying we need to buck up, we need to do better, we need to have more Sunday school classes focused on the Trinity, we need to get popular books out there, and so on. We need to help people realize how Trinitarian they're supposed to be. But it doesn't ever seem to work. And the fact is that the way the system is built, it doesn't need people to be informed to that degree. The system just easily chugs along without that widespread information as it has as long as it's existed. Now about the Holy Spirit, Swinburne says at the start of his presentation, paraphrasing that he's not going to argue for it, but you can't deduce the Trinity from the Bible because... It's plausible that the New Testament authors don't mean the Holy Spirit to be a third divine person. Now, there's no doubt that God's Spirit is talked about in personal ways in some famous passages in Paul and John. But on the other hand, it's often spoke of in impersonal ways. You're dunked in it. It comes down on people. It seems to be a power that's given to people. Just notice how often Christians in your experience refer to the Holy Spirit as an it you don't do that with the Father. You don't do that with Jesus. Jesus is not an it. The Trinity, well, that's another thing. That's an it for a lot of people, including Professor Swinburne. Yet it's a he for many others. And you have to ask why it isn't a they. But that's another topic. Now, there are a couple of early Trinity's podcasts on the Holy Spirit in the Bible, which I think are really good, featuring Pastor Sean Finnegan. And I'll put a link to those on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. What's really decisive for me is that the background to all the New Testament authors is the Old Testament and also pre-existing Jewish tradition. And it seems to me that there, God's Spirit is not someone in addition to God, that is to say the Father. It's just an aspect of God or a power of God. So I think Swinburne's right in what he says. However, I don't think he goes nearly far enough, because if you're trying to find a Trinity doctrine in the New Testament, that's really a Trinity doctrine. So you have one God who in some sense consists of three persons, and those persons are equally divine, and they've all eternally existed. None is greater than any other. There's more than one reason why that is not obviously in the New Testament. The full divinity and personhood of the Holy Spirit, that can be argued, but the fact is it's not clear. We know from history that in the year 380, there were still plenty of mainstream Christians disagreeing with the claim that the Holy Spirit is the same usia as the Father and the Son. And you know, in early Christianity, they also disagreed quite a bit about the exact status of the Son. What is it to be fully divine? Think about it. Well, it's got to be at least 
the following four things. So you have to be essentially omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, that is to say perfectly good, and you have to have independent authority. Of course, the son is not taught explicitly to be any of these four things, but is he implicitly taught to have these divine properties? Arguably not. If he's essentially omniscient, why does he tell us that there's something he doesn't know? If he's essentially all-powerful, omnipotent, why does it seem to portray him as dependent on his father for his power? Why is he empowered by God's spirit to do these miracles? Why does he say that the father is doing these works through him? If he's fully divine, he would just have fully divine power. Now about omnibenevolent, perfect goodness, if God is such that essentially he's as good as good can be, so that in principle he couldn't be tempted to do wrong, well, according to the New Testament, Jesus was tempted to do wrong. And so then if that's an implication of perfect goodness, then that's implying that Jesus doesn't have perfect divine goodness. Independent authority. God has certain rights as God, as the creator. He's like an owner and more. He's like a father and more. He's like a king and more. Is Jesus portrayed as having independent authority? Well, it looks like he gets his authority from God. He's God's anointed one, God's Messiah. God sends him. God empowers him. God gives him his mission. He says in the fourth gospel that I only do what I see the Father doing. So he's following God's lead. And then when he's raised from the dead and exalted, he's exalted to God's right hand by God. So it looks like he's given authority and power and dominion, like is portrayed back in the prophetic book of Daniel. He doesn't just have these things in virtue of being Yahweh. So it's not clear that the New Testament teaches the full divinity of the Holy Spirit, nor the full divinity of the Son of God. The New Testament doesn't make any mention of a tripersonal God, a God consisting of three persons. Not only does it not mention anything by the term Trinity or by any other term, it doesn't clearly imply that there is a tripersonal God. Nor is there anything said in the New Testament that obviously assumes belief in a multipersonal God. The closest thing that people can come up with, and they're really desperate to find something here if they're trying to find the Trinity in the Bible, the closest thing people come up with are so-called triadic passages. These are any passage in which God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God are mentioned sort of close together or mentioned together in the same context, such as Jesus' baptism or, most famously, the Great Commission. Well, such nearby mentions, such, quote, triadic passages, yeah, they're consistent with the author believing that there is a tripersonal God, but they simply don't require that. If you want to hear the arguments on both sides, check out my two episodes with Dr. Robert M. Bowman, the evangelical apologist. He wrote an article in which he gathered up all these triadic passages and, and you know, claims that he can find some support for the Trinity in those. My view is that it's just a flat anachronism to find the Trinity in any first century sources. It's like reading a letter of Thomas Jefferson and thinking there's a reference to the internet there. If you think you're reading that, you must be misreading it. Jefferson was a smart guy, but I don't think he anticipated the internet. Now, I realize what I'm saying here is controversial, and this does deserve to be argued at full length, for sure. 
When the Trinity's podcast returns, Professor Swinburne is not the only scholar who says that the New Testament does not imply any Trinity theory. Going back to Swinburne, one thing a lot of evangelical Protestants don't realize is that what he's saying in some scholarly circles really isn't controversial. Some scholars, particularly Roman Catholic ones, and for an example of this, you can see a post at Trinity's called Hans Kung on New Testament Theology, and I'll link it on the blog post, in which a famous liberal Roman Catholic theologian just observes that New Testament theology, for example, in the book of Acts, is not Trinitarian. For another example of this, consider the book called Return to Rome, Confessions of an Evangelical Catholic. This was published in 2007 or 2008 by Dr. Francis J. Beckwith. Beckwith was born into Roman Catholicism, but ended up becoming an evangelical Christian In fact, he was a Christian philosopher and apologist and even ended up being president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Then, to the dismay of many Protestants, he converted to Roman Catholicism. So, in this book, he's critical of Protestant distinctives, especially sola scriptura. And in page 76 of his book, he's talking about a presentation he gave in 2006 in Boston. In part, he says this, In a nutshell, I argue that Protestants who don't believe creeds are necessary, those who say things like no creed but Christ, do in fact accept creeds in the sense that they embrace fundamental doctrines that they believe are unassailable. Moreover, much of what these anti-creedal Protestants believe about Christ, the Trinity, the nature of Scripture, and so forth, are not easily derived from a reading of the Bible or a mere appeal to the words of Christ. Rather, They are beliefs that come from creeds and confessions that are the result of the hard work done by others in the first six centuries of the Christian church. Thus, the reason why these anti-creedal Protestants can be so dismissive about creeds is that they do not appreciate how much of their own theology, including their anti-creedalism, is based on incorrigible truths that were formulated in creeds they claim are not necessary, even as they implicitly accept them as normative. The anti-creedalist is like a rich nephew who finds himself with a full bank account, not knowing he inherited it from his uncle's fortune, but nevertheless claims to have earned it fair and square. So there he just strikes a glancing blow at the idea that a lot of Protestant apologists have, and the idea that he used to push when he was a Protestant apologist, that the Trinity and other doctrines can be rather directly and easily derived from the Bible. Just a few pages later, still criticizing the idea of sola scriptura, he brings in the famous Roman Catholic apologist for some support. He says, John Henry Cardinal Newman, for instance, asks us to consider just the doctrine of the Trinity as articulated in the Athanasian Creed developed in the late 4th century AD. And now he's quoting Newman. Is this to be considered as a mere peculiarity or no? Apparently a peculiarity 
For on the one hand, it is not held by all Protestants, and next, it is not brought out in form in Scripture. First, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. Next, I ask, how many of the verses of the Athanasian Creed are distinctly set down in Scripture? And further, take particular portions of the doctrine, namely, that Christ is co-eternal with the Father, that the Holy Ghost is God, or that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son, and consider the kind of texts and the modes of using them by which the proof is built up. Yet is there a more sacred, a more vital doctrine in the circle of the articles of faith than that of the Holy Trinity? Now, Beckwith in this book is kind of pulling his punch on this topic a little bit. He doesn't want to too much get in the face of his Protestant brethren. But let me just paraphrase what he and Newman would agree on. The Trinity is all important. You can't really get the Trinity from the Bible alone, but you got to get it from somewhere, so it must be from later Catholic traditions. In other words, you need the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church to be your authority for this doctrine. Most fundamentally, it's the one true church. It's Mother Church, which tells you that God is the Trinity. So this is another big topic, sola scriptura, or the extent of Christian authority. What should a Christian think is the authoritative tradition? And I don't think this matter has been fully argued out between Protestants and Catholics, and I see problems in both sides, to be honest. But again, back to my friend Brandon's question. He complains a bit humorously that he, who is not a Trinitarian Christian, would not be allowed to point out that the Trinity is not taught in the Bible, whereas someone like Professor Richard Swinburne can do exactly that. And it's interesting that none of the questions and objections in the Q&A portion of his talk went back to that statement. Now, that wasn't his main point. He said, I'm not going to argue for it. And really, his main focus was on his philosophical argument for the Trinity, but still, I can tell you, if I made that remark at the beginning of a paper that I gave, and then I went on to talk about something else, I think I would get a question about that. I think I'd have some audience members pretty riled up about that. See, the thing is, Brandon, you're not in the Trinity Club. He is, and so he has some privileges that you don't have. Now, you say you've never heard of this Trinity Club, uh, you'll be happy to know that I managed to get a hold of a little introductory video produced by the Trinity Club just to welcome people to it and help them know what it is that they've signed up for. I found it on an old VCR tape, and it was made in the times of VCRs, prehistory. You can imagine what it looks like and what kind of person's talking in it and so on, but I'm just going to present the audio to you so that you'll know what's involved in membership in the Trinity Club. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the Trinity Club's orientation video.
Okay, so I've got the tape. Bear with me for a second. Let me put it in this ancient VCR and press play. Hopefully it won't eat the tape. It's pretty old, you know. Okay. Seems like it's gonna work. Welcome to the Trinity Club. We have been faithfully policing the one true universal church since the year of our Lord 381. You may not have realized it, but you've already been a member for some time now. Take a look at your church's official statement of faith. We found that since membership is so automatic, many club members do not understand the obligations and benefits of membership. In this brief orientation, we'll explain those to you. But don't worry, as a member of the Trinity Club, your obligations are few and your membership benefits are many. Let's get started. What is it that you are obligated to do as a member of the Trinity Club? Really, there are just two things that you have to do, and then two things that you have to avoid. Here are the things that you have to do. If asked, you must say that you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And naturally, if you are asked to sign a statement declaring allegiance to the doctrine of the Trinity, you must, assuming the rest of the statement is acceptable, sign it. Those are the only two things that you must do to remain a member in good standing. Now there are a couple of things that you must not do. You must not say anything critical or skeptical about the doctrine of the Trinity. And of course, you can't sign any statement of faith which is critical of it. You can remember your obligations as a member of the Trinity Club using just three words. Say and sign. That's it. There are no dues, no extra meetings, no special undergarments which you must wear at all times. We don't even make you learn a secret handshake, but please note that we do take these simple requirements seriously. You need to watch what you say and what you sign up for. What you think, that's between you and God. How would we police that anyway? Of course, some will tell you how to think about the Trinity. But the Trinity Club, as such, endorses no interpretation of our claim that there is one God who exists in three persons. As we'll explain, any member is free to offer their own interpretation, even to argue for it. But we don't go that far. Our yoke is easy and our burden is light. Keep in mind that your membership will be revoked if you consistently fail to uphold these obligations. And if your membership is revoked, you will lose all the privileges to be explained shortly. For now, let it suffice to say that you'll be demoted to outsider status and will generally be ignored. About saying critical and skeptical things, you may say that the doctrine doesn't make any sense, that it is incomprehensible, that it is mysterious, and that no one really understands it, so long as you don't imply that these are in any way bad things or that they are the fault of Christian theologians. Such obscurities, of course, are strictly due to the subject matter. This is God we're talking about. Any doctrine that made sense to you wouldn't be about God. 
When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll play the portion of the video that advises club members on how to deal with deniers of the Trinity. we at the Trinity Club know that the doctrine of the Trinity does have its critics, and so we now provide some brief guidelines for dealing with them. The main thing to remember is that when the doctrine of the Trinity is criticized, it is best to ignore it. But if one must address such improprieties, follow these simple procedures depending on who the critic is. If the critic is a non-Christian, Dismiss him as an unenlightened and uninformed outsider. Outsiders have no right to speak about such things. If the critic is a member of a widely recognized cult, simply point that out. No one cares what robotic, mindless cultists think about anything. If the critic claims to be a Christian and is not a cult member, preferably you should no-platform them. A traitor should not be heard. No good can come of that. If you're absolutely forced to engage with such a Judas, portray the Christian critic as a dishonest denier of the obvious, as a rationalist and a fool who merely recycles objections that have been easily answered long ago. Trust us, that's the only thing such a person could be. In no circumstance should you treat the Trinity as anything theoretical. It is not a topic which might legitimately be argued about, so that it might be a good idea to hear both a case for it and a case against it. We are Christians, so of course we're for it. Those powerful arguments are really all that you're going to need to defend something that really is so wonderful that it doesn't need defending. Now, of course, you needn't limit yourself to such defenses. If you like, you can preach about the Trinity I mean, it's been done. You can celebrate Trinity Sunday. You can spend some time investigating it or reading books about it. Let's be honest though, they're pretty dry. You can try to understand in what sense the Trinity is rooted in the Bible. You can look into its history. You can show how it's relevant to Christian living. Frankly, many of these topics are best left to experts. But whether you're an expert or not, you're now equipped to deal with its critics. As we've seen, it's easy to be a member. Very little is required. Say and sign. But what does this get you? The answer is, it gets you a lot. Mind you, most club members will never need to use most of these benefits. Still, they are valuable and you should know the extent of them in case you ever need to avail yourself of them. As a member of the Trinity Club, let's start with our most lucrative benefit, 
access to mainstream Christian institutions, jobs, conferences, publishers, and funding. Club membership is the fundamental basis of ecumenical unity, as we all know. Another major benefit of membership would be opportunities to advance your status. Most Christians we know carefully avoid the topic of Trinitarian theologies, but if you venture into those, you will thereby show your own pluck, intelligence, and spiritual insight. We all want to get ahead, right? Being low status is a bummer. This will pay off differently depending on your station in the hierarchy of club members, but it will pay off pretty directly. If you're one of the very few members of your local church who is willing to hold forth on the doctrine of the Trinity, you will impress people as learned, spiritual, and deep. This will surely raise your status in the group, and if you're careful, you may in this way impress your pastor or priest. Don't overdo it, though. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you talk about the Trinity, you will be known as the Captain Kirk of the laity, someone who boldly goes where no one has gone before. People in your Sunday school class will look up to you and the word will get out that your class is where the real serious thinking is done. If you're a pastor, people look to you for understanding. And if you preach on the Trinity, generally people will take you at your word. If you're an apologist, you can be a part of the time-honored tradition of refuting those wicked cultists who deny this precious doctrine, even in many cases while pretending to be real Christians. You can be a knight in shining armor. You can wield the mighty lance which consists of the apologist's weapons. You can skewer the dragon. You, my friend, will be a hero. And this only applies to a few of you, but if you're a professor or student of philosophy, you're going to have more fun than a cop in a donut store. You'll be able to apply sophisticated theories from metaphysics and logic and epistemology to the Trinity. You go right ahead with your figuring stuff out. Just don't expect the Trinity Club to make any of that stuff mandatory. Just remember that you too have to say and sign. For top-level status upgrade benefits, you really have to be a theologian, and not just a pastor or an apologist. If you're a theologian, as a member of the Trinity Club, you have the right to present yourself as a revealer of deep, dark, divine mysteries. You can claim the honor of holding the golden key that unlocks all the secrets of Christian doctrine and Christian living. Secrets so precious that they could not be stated in the New Testament. The time was not right, so they were hidden in the depths. You can mine this treasure out of the ground and produce gold and silver. You can enrich the people. If you're inclined, every so often, you can join in with a new round of rescuing. Hey, we forgot about the Trinity, guys, but that's okay because I'm going to reclaim this precious doctrine, restoring our collective memory. At the very top advanced grandmaster black belt level, if you're a theologian, you can also boldly attempt to replace creedal Trinitarian language with something fresher, something more up-to-date, something not so tied to ancient philosophy, something which somehow is more appropriate to a modern or a postmodern context. 
the very language of God's church is in your hands. It needs to be new and improved for this generation. And only as a member of the Trinity Club will you be allowed to undertake such a bold enterprise. But let's pull back from Grandmaster level and just talk about any Christian who knows what they believe. What rights do you gain as a member of the Trinity Club? One important right is that you can speculate boldly about God with really no fear of consequences. So long as your club card is in hand, you can even present your own personal speculations as if they were what the Catholic traditions had been saying all along. You can riff on string theory, quantum mechanics, fractals, complex molecules, alternate universes. There's an entire feast of science, pop science, and sci-fi ideas that are at your disposal. According to the gas chromatograph, the secret ingredient is... Love! Some people criticize trying to illuminate the obscure with the equally obscure, but honestly, they've never tried it. It's a blast. You are now allowed to make unintelligible claims and to advance dubious arguments unchallenged, so long as they sound traditional. Philosophizing is really quite fun when you don't have to deal with over-serious, hard-nosed people who are going to insist on asking difficult questions and, even more rudely, who expect you to answer their questions. You don't answer questions. You ask questions. You're in the Trinity Club. Another thing that you can do is you can contradict other mainstream Christian doctrines, for instance about grace or foreknowledge or providence, without any fear of being denounced as a heretic. Just show any accuser your Trinity Club membership card. Generally, this will be enough to prove that you are not a heretic, even if you may be a little off base on other matters. Another benefit that you gain is that you are now able to treat your opponents roughly. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity means that Athanasius level rhetoric is wholly appropriate. You've got to put these people in their place. Don't be fussy. Don't be a wimp. Don't worry about interpreting their writings charitably. Don't worry about actually hearing out their case or giving them a time and a platform to present their case. You don't need to do things like that. What you need to do is point out how stupid and bad they are. But let's be honest, if they weren't stupid and or bad, they'd be in the club too. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our video explains how to deal with so-called biblical Unitarians. Now, some restorationist type, some extreme Protestant, some so-called Unitarian Christian comes along and says that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity, 
We all know that a person like this is a kook, an idiotic biblicist, someone who ignores the obvious roots of the doctrine in the New Testament. But as a member of the Trinity Club, you can publicly make obvious historical observations about the theologies of the biblical authors. For instance, you can say that no author of any book in the Bible is a Trinitarian in his theology. Of course, historical truths like this are said all the time in commentaries and deep in the bowels of scholarly literature, but as a member of the Trinity Club, you can say them in public. You can also freely comment on the political and generally the all-too-human nature of the councils of bishops which gave us the ecumenical creeds. Sure, these weren't exactly meetings of scholarly minds. They weren't seminars. There was bribery, political maneuvering, thuggery, dishonesty, and plenty of imperial meddling in these things. But this is all fine. The Almighty God can speak through a donkey, and frankly it's obvious that a good God would not allow his true church to get off base on basic theological matters. Another benefit is that, if you need to, you can admit that your theology makes no sense. And this will not count against it. Of course it doesn't make sense. This topic is a holy mystery. Now normally when someone like a Muslim admits that their theology makes no sense, this is an admission of defeat. But there is no defeat for you, my friend, as a member of the Trinity Club. Again, the Trinity Club does not endorse some one theology. There are various deep historical, doctrinal, and spiritual divisions within the Trinity Club, and as club members, we can admit this. However, we are all pretty much saying the same thing, and that's what matters. If some critic tries to exploit divisions in our camp, just remind this person that we are saying and signing the same things. A benefit which is available to all, regardless of rank, but which some people ignore is being able to participate in extremely fun bull sessions on various abstract themes. Things like oneness and threeness, starting points, the imminent trinity versus the economic trinity, inseparable operations, how to think trinitarianly, how all of the Bible and all aspects of Christianity are in one way or another Trinitarian. Not everyone goes in for this, admittedly. It's a hobby for nerds, to be sure, but it is a great way to let off steam while displaying your unusual abilities. That's it for our Trinity Club orientation. Again, say and sign. That's all you must do. And typically, you won't even be asked to do such things. By being a member of the Trinity Club, you are a part of a great thing. Ride along knowing that God's truth moves unimpeded through history with no setbacks or false turns. God protects his church and his truth. You won't find any cases where mainstream Christianity has gone wrong on such an important thing as this. Have things gone wrong? Well, sure. But anyway, none of them were as important as this. Welcome to the Trinity Club. 
protecting God's one true church since the year of our Lord, 381. Well, that's it. What'd you think? I gotta rewind the tape. I have to say I wasn't a big fan of that music. I think when I was actually in the club, I didn't really understand what membership involved. Anyway, I did have to turn in my card some years ago after revisiting the Bible at length. Let us know what you think in the comments section of the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in the Facebook group. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share on social media like Facebook, Pinterest, or Twitter. This week's thinking music has been the track Show Me, instrumental version by Josh Woodward. On the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. The VCR operating sounds were from a user at freesound.org named Nick Stage. Thanks for those. And the video music was from ancient history. Fortunately, it's gone extinct. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.